0: Hello and welcome to 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville. I'm Al Hunt in Washington. We're proud partners with the Sign Institute at American University and can't wait to get back there. Both James and I are at home now. He's in Mississippi. We have a great guest this week, but first, don't forget to subscribe to 2020 Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. David Harris is a professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh, where he teaches criminal law and evidence. He specializes in police conduct, search and seizure law, and the intersection of race and criminal justice. He's the author of four books on policing. His new book, A City Divided Race, Fear, and Law in Police Confrontations, published this year, and available on Amazon and everywhere else. He's also the host of a criminal injustice podcast. David, we are so fortunate to have you on. There is nobody better to talk to about the awful incidents that have occurred this past week. Thank you for being with us. But let me just start the, the, the Minneapolis, of the Floyd tragedy. Why does this keep recurring?
1: Glad to be with you, gentlemen, for a, a very sobering topic. And the reason that it keeps occurring is that we have unresolved questions within policing and especially at the intersection of race and criminal justice. You know, uh, it's been uh, many, many years, decades since the unrest in the middle of the 1960s that caused the formation of the Kerner Commission. Um, And if you go back to that report, uh, you will see that lots of those disturbances started with an incident of a police officer uh, abusing, beating, or hurting a black person. Uh, This isn't new. It goes back, and we have failed to come to grips with some of the very basic problems in policing. Uh, They involve the use of force disproportionately against African-Americans, and the use of force when it is frankly, not necessary. This comes about, as I've said in my book, A City Divided, because we have stark racial differences in our society that we have not fully addressed, and the police are drawn from our society. And then we give them very broad powers to use force, and in many instances, we don't train them properly, uh, and we do not hold them accountable for when things go wrong. That is the root cause of so much police misconduct and it's why it keeps happening. We don't hold ourselves, our organizations or our officers accountable for the damage that's caused. Well, you know, every time something like this
0: happens, I'm thinking of Michael Brown and other incidents uh, incidents before that, we say, all right, now police are gonna wear body cameras and now we're gonna have more sensitivity training. uh, And now we're gonna work more and uh, is it just uh, all uh, cosmetic or have some, has some progress been made in some places? And, and what more needs
1: to be done on the critical accountability question you just raised? Well, some progress has been made. I mean, it's it's easy for me to say as a middle-aged white man that things are better. I don't face this kind of thing that people of color do, but we do have better police departments, better police training, and by and large, better officers than we did, say, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, but not enough has been done. Body cameras, Uh, have turned out to be a real mixed bag, helpful in many instances. Um, uh, They do put certain facts beyond dispute, but not only what can be seen on the camera itself in front of the lens. Um, Better training is certainly helpful. Better policies are helpful. But this really lies at the bottom uh, on police culture, the culture within police departments. And culture in organizations is devilishly hard to change you really have to have leadership that will insist on it and then when things violate the rules that you put in place you must hold people accountable I hate to sound like a broken record Al but it really comes back to holding people holding their feet to the fire and up and down the entire organization, whether it's the chief or the newest patrol person. When things go wrong, you have to go back. Maybe you counsel them, maybe you discipline them, maybe you suggest they get into another line of work. And too often, law enforcement instead has circled the wagons, protected their own. They've refused to call out even the worst police officers within organizations and they taint the entire organization uh, with their misconduct that is tolerated, and the public sees this, they know it's there. Let me let me try one more, and then turn it over to James. Is there
0: any uh, are there any couple departments, any couple cities, that you'd say, boy, that's a place to look to. They really are making it work better. And how does Minneapolis rank? And
1: uh, any ranking of uh, of good and bad? Well, I would point to two that have made uh, real change and great strides. Uh, you can probably remember along with me. Uh, the LAPD of the era of the Rodney King incident, and even after that, uh, the, the Rampart scandals. I mean, things didn't stop being awful there with the Rodney King incident, it continued. But uh, a name that you will all recognize, Bill Bratton, he was brought in uh, to be the chief uh, in Los Angeles. A lot of people told him, don't take the job, it's a suicide mission. But he went in there with a completely different point of view, he said, we're going to transform this department, and he met with the people who most often sued the department um, and with with allies within it who wanted to be better. And today, you have a markedly different, not flawless, but much different department. And those changes and changes in culture have outlasted Bratton's tenure and now another chief's tenure too, and they seem pretty solid. The other example I would give you would be Camden, New Jersey, a place where the police problems were really intractable. And that was a small enough department, you couldn't do this in L.A. or New York, but they just went in and shut it down and started a brand new department from scratch, out of officers from their county. And they have a good police department now. It is one of the best uh, small to medium-sized departments in the country. How did Minneapolis rank in there? Well, they've made some progress. Uh, but as those who were doing actual training by outsiders in Minneapolis will tell you, they had obviously not gotten far enough. And you still had officers within the ranks who had not been held accountable for misconduct. There had still been incidents uh, in which not enough was done. And you see the results.
2: So, so let me tell you, as I see the cultural problem, Bob Crow, K-R-O-L-L. Is the head of the fraternal order of FOP in in Minneapolis? Eight hundred officers, All right? Bob Crow appears at Trump rallies. I think if you look at the Wikipedia, it's generous to say he's had multiple incidences of excessive force. But there's a word to describe Bob Crow, and that word is elected. All right. The police officers themselves collectively decided this is who they want to represent them. I think that's a frightful expression of the culture in the Minneapolis Police Department.
1: Uh, You know, I think you're making a really, really important point. Um, I, um, I, I, uh, I get asked about police unions a lot. And Mr. Kroll is with the police union. He's the leader of the police union up there. Um We have an FOP unit here in Pittsburgh where I live. It's FOP Lodge number 1, which tells you something about them. Um, and in many places, uh, unions have taken the position uh, that they will protect even their worst officers. Uh, and there is uh, 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 your real big problem with accountability and misconduct. Uh, They take often in uh, in some FOP lodges very extreme positions. Um, I don't know about anybody here in Pittsburgh appearing at a Trump rally, uh, but I do know that the union is seen by Pittsburgh residents, where I live, as controlling the police department. Uh, I'm not against unions. I am not against unions. I think fighting for good wages and working conditions is the right of every American and we should see more of it. But what I am against are unions that protect the worst people in their ranks who have to have contact with the public. And that's what I think goes on there. You also have some unions like this one up in Minneapolis where there's a lot of rabble-rousing around um, very negative stereotypes of the public. I mean, you, you can just tell that they don't respect the people they serve when these union people are talking. I don't mean every member of the union. I mean people like Mr. Kroll. And I've seen that time and again. That sends the message to people, we care about us, it's us against you. Uh, until these things change, James, we're going to have a big problem. Pro- part of the problem here is that big cities have given away the disciplinary process in whole or in part to the unions by putting mandatory arbitration in that guarantees for a lot of bad police officers that they can get fired and get their jobs back. Um, This has got to change. These collective bargaining and grievance that protect bad officers are no good for the public, and they're no good for all the good officers either.
2: Well, they can start by electing better people to represent them. But what what happened here, I think, is there's been a 20% spike in public relations with reference to police violence toward minorities. And the thing that this George Floyd thing did is, it, I think it really affected whites. Because whites were like, somebody who studies it obviously knows what's going on, but a lot of people were, yeah, I know it's happening, it's terrible, but, you know... It, It's just kind of the way the world is. And when you actually saw it, you could almost, people having this collective, like, oh, shit, I didn't know it was like this. And, you know, it, it, it really, it really affected, I think minority saw it and says, well, yeah, what's new here? And you had an entirely different reaction and not just from you know uber liberal people, but I mean even to the point where you had Rush Limbaugh go on, you know Charlemagne.
1: Yeah, I think I I could not agree more with you, James. I mean something about seeing uh, a recording of a human being killed right in front of you, as people called out, "Help him! Get off of his neck! He can't breathe!" and he called out for his own life. Something about seeing that I think has reached people in ways that it would not if there was just a report on the television or uh, or, or a bulletin uh, on the radio um it it was impossible to turn away from unless you just insisted on burying your head in the sand you could not say that this was right and one of the signs of that is you saw no law enforcement organizations except maybe mr kroll uh, no, no head of a police department or police organization, professional organization coming out and saying, let's just wait here that this officer was just doing the right thing. It doesn't look good. I mean, that's the kind of thing we would hear sometimes. And you know that. But we didn't hear that. And I think that's the reason it reached people at that level. I, I mean, it's it's really
2: it's really had a a real effect on, on public opinion. Now, how long it lasts for nothing. If, if Biden called you in, and he was president-elect. And he said, look, Prof, give me three things. I, I, I know we got to change the economic and inequality, and I know i got to do that. But what are, three, if I, what are three things I can do as president to make this better in the immediate term? What would you tell him?
1: Well, I would, I would tell him that there are a lot of police leaders, a lot of chiefs, a lot of leadership in police departments around the country that know what needs to be done and want to do it, but they've been kind of hamstrung. So I would tell him first to bring those people into the White House and have a large gathering and say, "Uh, we're going to do better. Uh, We, these people in back of me, they want to do better. And here are the things we're going to do. So you start with a, with a gathering that will convene and convene again, that is all targeted at this. And the, the playbook is there. This was President Obama's 21st century policing task force. So we know what needs to be done. We got to move from Uh, The warrior style policing that has been dominant in American police departments for the last 20, 25 years, the idea that it's a war out there and the police are out defending uh, us in a war or an insurgency that has got to go. That has got to be replaced by a style of policing and a method of policing that is all about guarding the public peace and establishing partnerships. We know how to do that, and the federal government can support it with money, with grants, with all kinds of initiatives. Number two, got to put the mechanics in place for an even more robust effort to change police departments that can't or won't change through federal legal action. We saw a pretty good effort under the Obama administration's civil rights division. It's got to be more intense. There's got to be more of it. Even at any one time, that kind of effort never reached more than 15 or 20 of the worst police departments. Uh, It's got to be something where we go all out. Number three, he would have to pledge himself to supporting changes in state law On the use of force, because use of force is governed for the most part by state law. There's a big Supreme Court decision that lays down the basic rules, but don't look for any changes there. Um, States, though, can do better for their citizens. We saw California pass a bill like that, um, and uh, other states could do it too. And he should voice his support for that very thing. Uh, And number four, you only gave me three, but I'm going to take a fourth one. Number four, he has to come out and say, we're going to build a federal infrastructure for police accountability. This will be structures that the police department in any city or town can take off the shelf, put in place and use courtesy of the federal government. And it will be national databases that track police misconduct, police complaints, and police decertification so we can get rid of the worst officers. David, you bring
0: up state law because I was going to ask you, why is it so hard to convict cops in these sort of incidents? I mean, I I, I cannot believe they can't get a conviction in Minneapolis. You couldn't ask for more proof. But I I think probably correctly, the charge they brought was third degree uh, because uh, it's almost impossible to prove intent But generally, in a lot of other places, I think the vast majority
1: of cases that go to trial, the police officer is acquitted. Well, it's true, Al. And and I think people are really mystified by that. Um, Let me break it down. Under state law, you got that Supreme Court decision that I mentioned to deal with. Uh, You have a lot of prosecutors reluctant to bring charges against police because they work hand in glove with those departments. Uh, and then you have the fundamentals of the law and our culture. What I mean by that is that law, that Supreme Court case called Graham versus Connor from the 80s, basically says you have to view the police officer's actions not with hindsight, not through your civilian eyes, but through the eyes of an objectively reasonable police officer. And, said the Supreme Court, you've got to look at it knowing that police officers are often in dangerous situations and have to make split-second decisions. Now, if that's the law, if that's what you're going to hold them to, um, it's going to be difficult under the best circumstances to convict a police officer. When you add to that the fact that most civilians, not all, uh, and it may become less common, but most civilians give police officers the benefit of the doubt when they're in court, um, and look for reasons to acquit, and you add the fear that most people feel of black men, and the social science on this is devastating. When you read it, um, they're looking for excuses, oftentimes, to acquit police officers because when you know when the guy who got shot is a scary black man. I mean that's why these things go wrong and that's why acquittals are so common. I mean, think of that case in in South Carolina, Walter Scott, the man is running away. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, he's running away. He's you know, he's running as fast as he can opposite direction, nothing in his hands and that officer takes a stance and shoots him in the back. And yet, you had a South Carolina jury would not convict. He only went to prison because he was given a kind of sweetheart plea deal. By the feds so these are always tough cases to get convictions on that's why we need to change that use of force law at the state level that could have an impact
0: well you know i know that most police officers are are really law-abiding good citizens we all need them they protect us all but robert o'brien the president's national security advisor i have no idea why he's talking about this Says, hey there's just a few bad apples uh, is it that easy
1: no, it's not. And that bad apple thing, that is, that is really unhelpful, just to put it as mildly as I can. It's not a question of a few bad apples. That's what we've heard for years. It's a question of, if you'd let me twist the metaphor a little bit, bad apple barrels. Okay? So, yes, you might have some officers who are not good and most of the others are, but it's the culture and the organization that allows those people to set the tone for the entire group that allows them to to set a very low standard of conduct uh, when they misbehave and they're not disciplined, they're not fired um, uh, and everybody within the department knows who those officers are. I've never been in a department to do training or anything else where everybody wasn't completely aware of who that 4, 5, 10 percent was and yet we don't do anything about them. So it's not bad apples. It's the bad apple barrel that doesn't take care of these problems. And that ultimately hurts not just the department itself, of course, but it hurts the public. And then every once in a while, one of those people ends up creating a real catastrophe, like George Floyd's death. You know, I just had to start
2: These Dirty Harry movies where the rogue cop was the hero and the, the police chief was the buffoon and he didn't pay attention to it. And I think that they have had some effect on culture and the way that the white public looks at some of this.
1: I agree with you, James. I mean, it, does it, all the way, it goes all the way back to Dirty Harry, doesn't it? It's, the, it's that sort of social image as the, you know, the police are supposed to protect us and they're a bunch of ineffectual people who do things like follow the law and they do things like cut breaks to defendants because they're of, a, of something called the Constitution. We don't need that. We need police who will stand up and be brutal when necessary. That's a terrible, terrible set of messages, but sadly it appeals to a certain group of people and always has. We have to insist on our values uh, as we go into w- w- whether we're talking about policing in the real world we're just talking about our country generally. We must insist that real American values of law, equality, and justice apply to everybody. And, you know, as, as a, a great sage said a long time ago, if uh, 10 or 100 guilty people have to go free uh, in order that the innocent shall be protected, that's okay. That's okay. We have to insist that we're going to live as what our Constitution says about us and who we aspire to be. Dirty Harry is a cartoon of some of the worst attitudes that are out there. Don't get me wrong. I mean I understand the appeal of the movie, but this shouldn't be real life.
2: Yeah, I mean who wants you to know? Yeah the heroic rogue cop, the buffoon mayor, and the you know, bureaucratic police chief who, you know, sits at his desk and doesn't know what it's like out there. And it's entertaining. But it just, over and over, people develop this affection for, you know, the rogue cop in the locker room.
0: Uh, David, you have done seminal work on racial profiling. Uh, two questions. How big a, how important is that in this whole police community race issue? And has
1: it gotten any better? Um, it is important, I would argue, Al, because uh, it is one of the tactics that has rankled and has uh, touched so many uh, African-Americans and other people of color. Uh, There's no more common experience in the United States, no more ubiquitous experience than driving in a vehicle and there is no more common setting for police contact. It is the most common setting uh, according to the data uh, that people have in which they might have contact with police. And when certain people get picked out over and over and over you know for baloney stuff like you know your tail lights out you don't have your sticker you went two minute two uh, miles an hour over the speed limit i mean they know what that's about it's not it's not a surprise to them because it keeps happening to them Uh, profiling can show up in other contexts too such as stop and frisk I mean, there's nothing illegal about stopping cars for traffic offenses, and there's nothing illegal about stop and frisk itself. But what is what what is wrong with these things is when they're used with a racial overlay. Number one, as I've argued in my book about profiling, Profiles and in Injustice, it actually doesn't help you catch bad guys. It makes your results worse. So if you wanted to be the most effective cop, you would not do this. But more importantly, it just leaves a mark on people. People understand, even in these low-level incidents that happen to them, uh, that the law doesn't apply to them in the same way that it applies to everybody else, that the police force is not there for them. It's there to do things to them. It's there to control them. Uh, And it's terribly, terribly damaging, Uh, and of course, Little things like that can add up. You can get a suspended license, then you can't get to work, and it has real consequences. Is it getting better? I do think it's better than it was, you know, 25 years ago when I began laboring in that particular vineyard. Um, I don't think it's gone by any means, uh, but we have much more of a consciousness among police and, of course, in the public that this isn't right and it's got to be tamed, and most importantly, we've got to be collecting data on on this because the data tells the tale. Uh, when you get the data, you can see if this is a problem with one officer in an entire department, and then, of course, you've got to do something about it.
0: Well, David, I must tell you, in a week, in a very emotional week, uh, tragedy uh, uh, has beset the country, uh, first in Minneapolis and then uh, with some of these Demonstrations, most of which an overwhelming majority, I think, are very, very heartfelt. Uh, I just hope that a new administration and police chiefs all over America will listen uh, to David Harris, because you have really brought light uh, in a very difficult time. James and I are very appreciative of your time.
2: Excellent. Great point.
0: Boy, I learned a lot from that. Um, I really did. I mean, maybe more than I read in the papers the last couple of days combined. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, what needs to, what the problem is, what needs to be done, uh, all the way to, I, I wish if it weren't for the pandemic, I'd go up to Camden, New Jersey tomorrow, which I know. I grew up near Camden. It's a really, really home of Jersey Joe Walcott in a really impoverished town. And the fact that they have done so well, and there was that, that sheriff uh, out in Genesee County, Michigan who the protesters came to the police station and he came outside and he threw his guns uh to the side and he said here I'm marching with you. You know, more police officers like that as opposed to the guy in Minneapolis uh we'd be making progress.
2: Yeah, again to just make the distressing point that that guy was elected. Yeah. You know, the police chief yep. was appointed and he yep. was elected because I hate to say this, but it was probably the manifestation of the culture.
0: I'm afraid you're right, and it has to change. Let's turn to, let's turn to politics, uh, if we can, something that we have talked about from time to time. Uh, Donald Trump uh, this week walks out of the White House, surrounded by security, as always, marches across Lafayette Park. who the, there's, It's filled with demonstrators who, at the direction of the attorney general, police have scattered, using tear gas on some, Trump uh, walks all alone for the camera shot for a while, a la Duke Wayne. Uh, and then he has his posse behind him. They go up to this church, which has been shut down, a historic church, saint johns John's uh, been shut down because of a fire the night before. And he summons all the sycophants to come up and he holds up a Bible. You have arranged probably a lot of photo shots
2: in your day. How does this one rate? Well, first of all, The only thing that's surprising is that we would be surprised at anything he does. Right. Right? And, of course, he holds up the Bible, which is backwards, everything about it. And you got these preachers and these Republicans trying to justify this. I mean, that's the only... The only thing that is marginally entertaining is to watch the painful justifications that Republicans go through for Trump's behavior. It's, it's becoming to be almost entertaining. It really is.
0: I agree. I thought, uh, you know, we have from time to time said, all right, this is it. This one is the worst I've ever seen since he's been president. Uh, And there were so many awful sidebars to this, one of which the Washington Post captured in a story on Wednesday morning. Apparently, a lot of this was the idea of his daughter, uh, Ivanka. And she's marching with him across. There are a lot of protesters out there. Terrible things have happened to America. There's great trauma. And she's marching across, carrying her designer handbag and wearing pearls. Uh, And I just, she and Jared Kushner, uh, have got to be the model we've criticized white house relatives before they have got to be the model, um, of nepotistic misfits. Uh, they have, they really are as bad as it gets. Yep. I mean, I, but we should not be surprised. Well, we, we you're right. You're absolutely right. But, but you know, the other thing that he counts on, I think James is that we're not surprised. So we pass over it. Uh, not that we, uh, not that we, uh, uh, don't condemn it. We do. But then we move on. You can't remember. I mean, I just noticed this week several television reports, perfectly fine reports. Where we talk about Joe Biden and say, well, Joe Biden now is talking about race. This is in the context uh, of what he said last week when he misspoke to a radio uh, host and uh, said that, if you know, if you vote Republican, you ain't black. That wasn't the smartest thing in the world to say, but it wasn't a really big faux pas compared to what Trump does every day. But he does it so much that it all gets lost. It's what Somebody years ago called Future Shock. And I guess that's why he gets away with
2: some of it. You, you know what J.C. Watts' daddy said? He was a Baptist preacher in Oklahoma. Yeah. He said, a, a black person voting for a Republican is like a chicken voting for Colonel Sanders. <laughs> right? <laughs> and it, 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 all right, just that, that's what he said. You can look it up. Yeah. yeah. And the reason you laugh because there's so much truth to it. it but one thing that I hope, I hope that this really motivates non-white under 35s in these swing states to vote. I, I, You know, I hope that there's a a reaction, And, and that is a group of people that if they got politically motivated, they could make a real difference because their participation rates have tended to be very low. And to the extent that you can. These are some really valuable Democratic voters.
0: Yeah, I agree. You mentioned, you cited earlier some of the uh, right-wing evangelicals who aren't offended by anything that Trump does and, and praised him. But I think, on the other hand, there were some religious leaders who really rose to the occasion. I thought the Episcopal bishop really, really uh, put the wood to him. I suppose people aren't surprised. That's as a reputation is a very liberal denomination, but the Archbishop of Washington, the Catholic Archbishop of Washington, was just outraged that he used a uh, a church venue for political purposes, and really let him have it. And moreover, James, the head of the Southern Baptist Convention, and Russell Moore, who is one of the really honest evangelical conservatives, just said that the use of the Bible as a prop is outrageous. There are some. There are some really, really admirable people who aren't tolerating this. These. These kind of gambits.
2: They are. And, and, you know, but you look at at the some that do, and I think who, who the Archbishop Gregory was going after was the Knights of Columbus, which is run by uh, a Jesse Helms acolyte. So if you can imagine, the view of the Knights of Columbus towards certain demographics. We'll leave it at that.
0: You know, I mentioned Biden earlier, James. He uh, had a number of interviews this week, uh, and he gave a speech uh, in Philadelphia. Uh, my impression in watching some of those interviews and in watching the speech, it was one of the better weeks he's ever had. He really, really looked good. He was measured. He, uh at the same time, uh, being tough on Trump, uh, but also trying to call on Americans to unify in these difficult times. I thought it was really... a I hate this expression. It was a presidential-type
2: speech. I think it. I I agree. And weirdly enough, I don't think that Reagan or Clinton or Obama could have done any better in mm-hmm. that situation. It, it was called for. Was really Joe Biden. Years of experience, the the trust that people have in him, the kind of decency about him, and. It just came across it did it wasn't full of soaring rhetoric and it wasn't if not us who not now when any of that and i give him a lot of credit for what he did and i give him as much for what he didn't do you know he he came from the heart and he didn't try too hard you know, it was just the right tone.
0: I, th- I think you just you, you you got it exactly right he um He didn't let Trump off the hook. He really went after Trump in a very effective and, I think, uh, very direct and uh, very honest way. But that wasn't the whole speech. If the speech had just been how awful Trump has been, which he has been during this great trauma, and how he fails us uh, in a time when we need to unify this country, you know, that'd have been a you know a political speech. That'd have been you know okay, I suppose. But he did much more than that. Uh, Two thirds of the speech was exactly what you said. He's never going to engage in soaring rhetoric. That's not what Joe is, but he 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 showed a sincerity, a a clarity of of of, of purpose and vision and ideals that I think really really resonated. Yeah, I did. Yeah, so it was it was a it was a good week for Joe Biden. Uh, there were also a number of elections. Uh, it didn't. As far as the presidential race is concerned, didn't much matter. He won a number of other primaries, but uh, they, at this stage, uh, are irrelevant. He's going to be the nominee in August. Uh, There were a couple that were interesting, and I suppose more than any place else, it was a couple in Iowa. One, which was good news for the Republicans, Steve King, the uh, vitriolic right-wing congressman who's caused them such embarrassment, was defeated in a primary. My guess is that Republicans were delighted and Democrats not so delighted because they thought they could beat Steve King in the fall. And the other result in Iowa that didn't get as much attention, but that matters was the Senate democratic primary where the preferred candidate for most Democrats uh, that are looking at that race was Teresa Greenfield. And she won uh, handily over a Des Moines registered candidate. Doesn't have to have a runoff. She's going to be a tough opponent for Joni Ernst in the fall.
2: Yeah, no. And, and the, the turnout was like, buffo good according to the reports i heard you know yeah no i yeah. was it, it, she's no worse than 50 50 she's really not and
0: and and she's not one of their top three or four pickups uh likely pickups i mean there are
2: probably at least three or four places that are more likely really? four 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 north carolina arizona to colorado and maine yeah yeah they're they're, they're actually in my view you know over 50% Democratic. Right. Right, chance. right. And I would put Montana and Iowa, Texas and Georgia, which is, we, we talked about Georgia last week and I got a little bit convoluted, but it's actually possible that you would have two Senate elections in Georgia in January. Because the Purdue seat, the Purdue seat is, is, just the way you do it. There's going to be a Democratic primary in Osaroff who ran for the six-district seat uh, special and Teresa Tomlinson, who's the Democratic mayor of Columbus, are the two leading Democratic candidates. They're going to have a primary this summer. And then they will vote on election day for that seat in November. But there's a libertarian candidate. And in Georgia, if you don't get 50% on Election Day, so if somebody gets 49.9, you have a runoff. And that has happened. That is possible. You're definitely going to have a runoff in the other race because that's the Kelly Loeffler seat, the Johnny Eidrickson seat, where Doug Collins could probably beat Loeffler already. And then it's going to be between. In, in that instance, going to be Reverend Warnock or a, a, a guy named Travis, who's a highly respected lawyer from Augusta, the top two will run off in January. In both of those seats, to pick up one of them is is not an unrealistic hope. I, I don't I shy away from the word expectation now, but it's certainly realistic to hope we could win one of those Senate seats.
0: Well, this is one of those few areas where we have a slight disagreement. I think uh, Democrats have done a really good job in recruiting good candidates, persuading Steve Bullock to run, Teresa Greenfield in Iowa, Sarah Gideon up in Maine. I think, um, I don't think there's a strong Democrat uh, in that field. And you're right, one of those two seats at least should be won. Uh, and if Stacey Abrams hadn't decided she was too big to run for the Senate, uh, or if they had persuaded, I don't know, Sally Yates or someone else. So I hope you're right, but I'm, mark, mark me down as skeptical in Georgia.
2: Uh, I mean, I'm, look, i I'm, am I'm said hope. I didn't say expectation. You
0: did. You did.
2: And, and, and by the way, Purdue is not a great, he's got some issues to deal with. He's not the greatest incumbent you ever ran against. And, you know, Doug Collins is, Trump is not that popular in Georgia. He's probably, if anything, Below fifty.
0: Oh yeah, he's below fifty in favorability, and because the polls show it, 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 it virtually even down there Biden right. and Trump.
2: So you're not, know, it, it, the candidate would, would, help some, but this election is going to be all about Trump. Really, not much else that people are going to vote on, other than attitudes on Trump. I mean, they're not going to vote on the minimum wage, or, you know. This is not what's driving this at all. Yeah. Trump is driving everything.
0: Yeah, he is, and it, uh, he will continue to. And he will continue to because he's a man who's desperate, James. Uh, and if he, um, if he does things that are untoward in normal times when he's desperate, uh, we can only imagine what he's going to do.
2: a Georgia Republican poll, uh-huh. and Trump's favorability among college white women is 12%. Right? The, the only people that think that the Democrats don't have a chance in Georgia are the Democrats. The Republicans definitely think the Democrats have a chance in Georgia. You couldn't find a single Republican consultant that wouldn't tell you, "Damn, man, I don't, I don't like the way this is going." None.
0: Before we go, let's do a little bit of a back page. Uh, you're still down in Mississippi. Anything interesting this
2: week? Well, actually, for the moment, I'm in Louisiana. But New Orleans, okay? Uh, yeah, but back, I'm going out. It's not very far apart. Uh, interesting this week? Well, no, except for it's June the third, and there's a storm coming our way. Yeah. The third, the third named storm, and then you have a really big storm uh, in. In India and Mumbai are coming and the water temperatures are distressingly high everywhere I cannot emphasize enough that this is going to be a very challenging hurricane season in very challenging times and if I tell you I had any any hope that we'd have an adequate federal response I'd be lying
0: oh uh. And and and, you know, and and if the pandemic is still a threat, which yeah, it likely will be, my God, can you imagine Can you imagine
2: that? And then you're having the people hoarded into shelters. Where do, if you have to evacuate a reasonable sized city, where do you where do you go? I don't know. Let's say Miami has to evacuate. Oh. Or Houston. Or New Orleans or Norfolk. Or Charleston. All right? Any of those it could be Baltimore, but you don't know and but if you look at a place where you have these big, big evacuations i' you know the worst case scenario Miami it'd be that some come up the coast woof'd be a mess and and the water temperatures are just disgustingly high in in the Atlantic Ocean. I mean it it's gonna be a mess, I promise you. I hate, and I like anybody else, well I hope no one gets it, but I hope we don't get it but more than anybody else. We don't want it. We don't need it. Well you're gonna to have to come back to the Shenandoah for a while, James. Well, I'm, I'm going yeah. I'm going I cannot I, I'm not tell I can't ride out a hurricane.
0: Well, I don't I don't have a lot of good news to offset that. I did finish last weekend. I think you have to Eric Larson's great book, The Splendid and the Vile Church. Oh, yeah. I mean, anyone who hadn't read it, it just, I, James, I'll tell you, I finished it like 504 pages and I, I don't want it to end. I want to keep going. I want to find out. <laughs> Go to 1942. Uh, and I just, I read a number of Churchill biographies, but in in a, in a very, very personal way. This brought it home as well as any. Uh, And my God. And the other thing I thought was when you had someone like Harry Hopkins, FDR's, closest Confidant, going over at Britain's time of great peril and being able to spend three weeks with the prime minister of of Great Britain and really forging and putting together uh, the beginnings uh, of an alliance with Lend-Lease and others that helped save Britain. I couldn't imagine someone doing that in this White House, but... That goes without saying. Um, the only other news I have is not great news, I guess. For the first time in my life, James, for the first time in my life, I was a fat cat. I made my first campaign contribution, $50, to a former student, and Obama White House aide, Jordan Grossman, who was running for city council. God, he is a, a, a smart, terrific young man, going to make a real difference in public policy in this country. Uh, and I, so I, w- I was a fat cat and he didn't quite make it so i think i'm going to i'm going to oh, uh, yeah i'm going to retire as a as a as a political sugar daddy i think
2: as a donor yeah you'll hear from jordan grossman again yeah. though put the updates in here for me. <laughs> all right that was a, that was that was a great show it that was, guy was it man, was it
0: great. was a great show and uh, we had it was it was uh, in a very difficult uh, time, uh, we learned a lot and I really enjoyed it. I mean that in the best sense of the word. You know, I, I go
2: back, that thing at St. John's, that's got to be, even I got to admit, anybody that tries to understand the depths of his rottenness, you can't imagine it. You oh. really can't. Oh. I mean, an expression on his face. It, you know, I, I, I'll tell you, it just
0: it personified evil. It just personified evil. It was using a, a religious institution that had been harmed badly the night before, a great church, using it for political purposes, holding up the Bible, which he's probably never opened in his life, bringing along the simpering sycophants, uh, his daughter uh, orchestrating uh, much of it, uh, tear gassing peaceful protesters. I, 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 how can it get worse? But it will. It will. We promise you
2: that. It will get worse.
0: All right, James Carville, you stay safe this no, week. On that optimistic note. Um, you stay safe, and I'm looking forward to uh, talking to you. Actually, I'm looking forward to talking to you probably this afternoon. But I'm looking forward to talking to you on this podcast uh, in another week, okay? You bet. Great show. Hey, thank you for subscribing, and please tell your friends uh, that the Ragin' Cajun and Albert Hunt are talking politics and a whole lot more each week. We'd love to welcome all of you new listeners, and we appreciate all those who've been with us since the beginning. We'll talk to you again next week. Be safe.